0: Today, what we're going to go through is basically a a business legal checklist. So it's some of the basics that you need to know if you want to become an importer or distributor. So some of this may be familiar to you and others who may be looking to get into this industry. Hopefully, it will be a guideline for you. Okay. so as you may be aware, there's a three-tier system in the alcoholic beverage industry. So each tier is separated for financial reasons, and the top tier uh, is usually referred to for the suppliers, manufacturers, and importers. The next level would be wholesaler distributors, which are interchangeable, and then the retail level. So the supplier or the importer manufacturer imports, the, uh, brings in the products, and sells it to the wholesaler. And the wholesaler, in turn, sells it to the retailers. And then the retailers, in turn, sell it to the consumers. So you're not going to be able to get your products directly just from the importer. So if you're looking to start a business, um, you want to determine what it's going to be. Do you want to be an importer? Do you want to bring in products in from overseas into the United States? Do you want to be a distributor? Then you're going to be selling to possibly other distributors and retailers. Or you can actually do both. You can be an importer and a wholesaler. So today, um, of course, there are other operations you can have. You can be a winery, you can be a brewery, you can have a distillery. But for today's purposes, we're just going to talk about importers and wholesalers. So once you decide what type of business that you want to have, so say I just came back from a trip from Italy, had some fantastic wines, some amazing spirits, and I thought, you know, why don't I come back home and then start this business? I could share with my friends, family, and then others who haven't been exposed to maybe this winery or distillery. So I decide that I'm going to start my business in New York, because at least if I'm resident here, I don't have to fight the traffic. So I'm going to start my business. Um, I'm going to open up an office here. But then I may not just want to sell those products in New York. I may want to sell them in New Jersey. I may want to sell them in Connecticut. Maybe I want to go down the eastern seaboard to Florida. Maybe I'm going to be really uh, uh, have grandiose plans, and then I'm going to go nationwide. I'm going to sell California and in, in between. So once I determine that, then I can really understand what I need to do to actually start this business. So what kind of legal structure do I want? You know, there are things as sole proprietorships. I could just have my own business. I can go in with partners. I can have a partnership. I can also start a corporation. Or I may want to opt for a limited liability company. Now the reason why you may want to start your own business and create a new entity is so you can insulate yourself from personal liability from those of your corporation if you have obligations and debts. So most of my clients usually come to me and they want to form either a corporation or a limited liability company. So corporations you're probably well aware of, you hear about them in the news all the time. They are a little more formal in their structure. They usually have a board of directors that determines what the strategy is going to be for that business. You'll have officers who run the day to day operations. And the board, uh, um, the officers implement the plan from the board, and the board, they have to report to their shareholders. So the shareholders are the owners of the corporation. They tend to be a little more formal in their structure, in that they have annual meetings that they're required to hold. And they report on their meetings, so whatever decisions they may have when they get together, there's a formal record of it. Now on the other hand, you can have a limited liability company where, again, it's a little less formal, but yet you still have that installation for liability purposes. So uh, with a limited liability company, you are not required to hold these annual meetings. However, you will do that because you want to have some type of of structure or how you organize yourselves. And then also, if you have meetings, I always encourage people, even though it's not required, that you actually record those minutes. So if you decide on acquiring a building or you're going to purchase another company, or you're going to do some other type of business acquisition that you want to have a record of it. You don't want to just go to a meeting, say, yeah, this is what we're going to do, and then nothing else. So some of the things that um, differentiate the limited liability company and a corporation are you know, what type of ownership you have. Do your owners need to be US citizens? Are you able to split any profits or business losses on your personal income taxes? So for instance, a corporation right now, when they are taxed, um, if there's a profit in the business, that profit is taxed at a corporate tax. Now, if those profits are then distributed to the shareholders, which are the owners of the company, well, then once that distribution is made, that's taxed at your personal tax level. Difference with the limited liability company is that you are taxed at your personal tax um, bracket. So if I have a limited liability company and I have four other, uh, four other members, because as opposed to a corporation who has shareholders, limited liability companies have members, I may have a different tax bracket than maybe the two other members that are part of the organization. So there are definitely benefits to it. Um, Following now the recent changes in the tax laws, they may not be as extreme as they once were, but it's something to consider. So when you're looking at the type of entity or structure that you'd like to have, it's a good idea to talk to your legal counsel and your accountant just to figure out what's best for you. Now, getting into the state of formation. Where do you want to be incorporated or where do you want to have your company formed? Well, lots of people will do it in the state where they reside or where the principal office is going to be. So if I'm going to open up a business in New York, I may say I'm going to form my organization in the state of New York. So I'll make a filing with the secretary of state in New York. Other people may want to file in Delaware. You may have heard that Delaware is very favorable to businesses. So again, that may be another option. So these are things that you would want to discuss again with your attorney or your accountant, so this way you find out what's the best option for you. Getting into the ownership structure. um, Again, what type of organization do you want? How is it going to be set up? Are you going to be working with friends and family? Do you think you're going to keep it small? Do you think that you're looking to the future that you want to be acquired? Well then, in such case, maybe you want a different entity than you originally thought. Something that allows you to grow. Maybe you want to be able to get investors down the line. And then management structure. Again, how formalized do you want to be? Do you want it where you need to have your meetings um, that are very structured? And again, if you have investors, maybe a C corporation is the way to go. But in some cases, a limited liability may also be beneficial to you. So again, these are just things that you want to think about before diving into a, to starting up your new entity. So once you know what you're going to do and what your structure is going to be, and say, I want to be an importer and distributor because I really love those Italian products that I tried in Italy. So now, how much money do I really need to fund this company? Well, I think it's really best to do your due diligence and figure that out. Now, if I'm starting just an import company, well, my cash needs may not be as significant as if I'm looking also to be a wholesaler. If I'm going to be a wholesaler of products, I may need to go out there and get a sales team together. I may need to have vehicles or trucking so I can get the products to where they need to go. I may need a warehouse. And if I need warehouse space in addition to my lease, again, these are other expenses that I may not have accounted for. So when you're trying to figure out what you actually need, you're not just looking at the initial startup cost of the venture, you're gonna look to the future and see, okay, how long can I keep this running before I start turning a profit? Because as we know, most startups don't start generating profits immediately. So once you figure out how much you need to invest in your new company, where are these funds coming from? Well, some people may start out small, and they may have their own personal funds set aside, and they're going to invest that into this venture. Others may look to others to get some financial help. So maybe there's a gift involved, that someone will gift you some money to help you start up your organization. You may go the conventional route and get a loan. You go to the bank, you tell them what you're looking to do, that you're starting a new business, and take out a conventional loan. Uh, another option is that you may look for investors. So if I'm looking with my small company that I want to bring in investors, it could be friends and family, it could be other acquaintances that have they meet certain thresholds to be an investor in my company, then what I would do is issue a private placement memo and give them a subscription agreement so they know that they're purchasing X number shares if it's a corporation, or units, if it's a limited liability company, and what the fee is going to be per unit. So this way, again, everything you want to have documented is not going to be based on a handshake. And there's actually a reason for this. Because when you're going to go apply for your permit, you need to be able to show where the source of funds are coming from. So if I just go and say, I'm going to start up this business, and I have a sack full of money, and say, hey, great, I have $100,000 to start my business, well, that's fine because I have the wherewithal to do it because now I have money. However, when they're looking for my permit, applic- my permit application, I have to show where the source of funds are coming from. So if it's personal funds, that's generally easy, right? You have a bank account. You show them your bank account, a withdrawal of $10,000, and it's going to be transferred into the new business account. If it's a gift, well, generally what they'll want to see is a gift letter. So if I give somebody $10,000 to start their business, I would write a letter saying, yes, I issued this $10,000 to so-and-so for this amount. Now, a loan obviously is much easier. You go, it's a commercial loan. We know when you sign a loan, you're signing your life away. There are lots and lots and lots of documents and you would be able to show where that source of funds, where the source of funds are coming from. And then lastly, with equity investors, again, if you have a subscription agreement, then you're able to show the documentation. I had 10 investors invest in my company, they purchased X number shares or units, this is what they paid for it, and so now the picture is rounded out where the funds are coming from. And then the last thing I think to consider when you're looking at who may be investing in your company or who may become part, uh, part of your ownership is tight house considerations. So we're talking about the three-tier system, and you have your importers, your wholesalers, and your retailers. So if there's a retailer that wants to invest or be an owner in your company, that's going to be problematic because you can't have a retail license and either an importation or wholesaler license. So when you're screening people or looking for them to become part of the organization, you may just want to double check and see if they have any interest. Because normally what they'll do when they're scanning um, as to who owns a company, If you have 10 or less shareholders or members, then they're gonna wanna look at or have personal questionnaires from all those individuals. If you have more than um, 10 shareholders or members, well then they're gonna look at people that hold over 10% of the holdings. So again, so to avoid any hiccups with your application, it's something that you wanna screen for in advance. So now what kind of permits do you need? Well, the first thing to do if you're going to start your business is you need to get a federal basic permit. So depending upon if you're going to be an importer, uh, you'll get an importer's basic permit. If you're going to be a wholesaler, it would be a wholesaler's basic permit. And also at the federal, federal level, you can get a combined permit. So it's slightly less paperwork, not that much, but you can get a combined permit to do both. So once you do that, and you are approved, and you get your federal permit, then if you're going to be an importer, you also have to register as an alcohol dealer with the TTB. So now that you have your federal license under your belt, what do you do, how do you start operations? Well, of course you have to do it at the state level too. So the federal, because we have our federal guidelines, uh, overall uh, laws, and then each state has their own individual laws. So if I'm going to open up my business in New York, well then I'm going to have to apply for those permits locally. So I would go to the state liquor authority and apply for an importer's permit, if I'm going to be an importer in New York, And then also, if I'm going to be a wholesaler, I have to determine what type of wholesaler I'm going to be. Do I want to be a wine-only wholesaler, or do I want to be a wine and spirits wholesaler? Well, I'm going to opt for the wine and and, um, spirits wholesaler because I like those products in Italy, right? The wine and the distilled spirits. So then I would apply for those permits in New York. And then once those are issued, then I, um, I can start my operation in New York now what about those other states that I was interested in selling into? What if it's New Jersey? What if it's Florida? What if it's Nevada? What if it's California? Well, I can't just sell because I have my federal basic permit and also my New York permits. So now I have to look to those individual states and see what I need. So if I am going to sell to another wholesaler in another state, I may need an out-of-state dealer's permit or I may need an out-of-state shipper's permit or whatever permit that is required for that particular state. So providing everything is fine, I got my other permits, my federal and my New York state permits, Uh, assuming that everything is good, I should be able to get those in the other particular states. Now, in addition to those permits, because you haven't filled out enough paperwork, um, you need a certificate of authority to do business in those states as well. Again, this is a nominal filing. It's not very costly, but it just allows you to do business. Because if I have a New York corporation, that's considered foreign to other states. So it's not foreign meaning outside the borders of the US, but it's foreign to that particular state. So New Jersey, if if a Delaware corporation wants to, to do work or conduct business in New Jersey, they're considered foreign, so they would just file an application to do so. So now that you have your permits in place, you have federal permits, you have your state permits, well, how do you actually start running your business? Well, people, right? We need people in order to do this. So you may be in a position to either hire employees, or maybe you're not in a position to hire employees right now. Maybe it's really too early in the game. So you may look to hire some consultants. Now, this is beyond going friends and family and everyone like pitching in to help you out. So if you're going to go with um, employees, Again, starting, uh, if you're a company just starting out, you may not have lots of resources to help you um, issuing these letters or screening people to come on board. But what you do want to have is, some, again, some form of documentation. I apologize, I'm a lawyer, I like paper. And so if you go with an offer letter, it doesn't have to be... Um, something that's extremely extensive. It doesn't have to be a 10-page document. But you want something that is a couple of pages that says, you know, we're offering you this position. You're going to start on x date. This is your salary. These are the hours of the office. Um, This is your title. Here are your vacation days or paid time off. And whatever else is pertinent for that position. And then again, because if we're going the simple route, If you bring somebody on board as an employee and for some reason they either leave voluntarily or they're dismissed, you want to have some form of protection for any confidential information that you may have for your business. Now, that could be anything from your business plans. It could be your customer lists. It could be uh, formulation if you're producing a product. So anything that is confidential to your business that you'd like to protect, if you have them sign what's either called a confidentiality agreement or a non-disclosure agreement, that will give you some level of protection. So that's generally a one-page sheet, maybe it's two pages, but it's something that I recommend that people do. So you have an offer letter and a non-disclosure agreement. Now, if you're dealing with consultants, so again, somebody that's coming on board that's not full time, maybe they're helping you out on a particular project. Maybe they're they're getting your website on board or up, up and running. Maybe you want them to design your labels. Whatever that may be, and it doesn't um, encompass full-time employment, you can deal with a consulting agreement, which, again, could be something that's very short, that's talking about the scope of work that they're going to be providing for you, the compensation, and the expectation of what type of deliverables that would be. Are they going to provide you with a full label for your product, and they're going to do that within two weeks? Well, you want to just include that in your document. Now, confidentiality agreements can have the non-disclosure provisions included in it, or again, if you wanna go simple, the simple route, you can just have a very short, uh, consulting agreement and then provide the standard um, NDA or confidentiality agreement to have them sign it. Because again, they may be working on projects for you that a competitor may be working on too. Maybe they're designing your label. Maybe they're talking about events that you're gonna be holding. Maybe they're um, preparing um, the demographics for your customer, your ideal customer. So again, they're collecting data information that you don't want your competitors to have. When you get into more sophisticated um, employment agreements, generally when you're dealing with probably executives or the management level, you may want to have some restrictive covenants in there which prevents those individuals from competing with one of your competitors. So if I have my CFO that I've worked with for five years and for whatever reason we part ways, well, here's somebody who's been working on my budget, they know my plans, they know what I'm gonna be doing, the marketing um, plans or sets for the next five years out, and they've been working with me for five. So maybe I don't want that person to go to my competitor who's my brother, because we're not talking, and he's out there trying to beat me in my own business. So I may put in a non-compete restriction. Now, non-compete, maybe he could not compete for six months, maybe it's a year, but there's usually some form of compensation that I would provide because I can't just restrict somebody from earning a living. And then another type of restrictive covenant that's common would be a non-solicitation. How many times have you heard that someone has a business, there's a falling out, and then one of the partners leaves or one of the parties in management leaves, and what do they do? They, take the, they cherry pick the good employees. They take five of your key employees and now what? Now you don't have a business. So a non-solicitation provision also helps you protect your business so this way someone can't run off with those employees. And it's not always just limited to employees. It could be customers that you do business worth with. So um, again, it's something to consider. Everything here that I'm mentioning isn't uh, an absolute, but they're just suggestions as you're building your business and you're growing. And then the last thing is an em- uh, employee handbook. So whether you work at a company right now uh, you may have an employee guide or employee handbook, basically is a combination of all the different procedures that you need to follow at the company. It could be, you know, what hours you need to work. It could be, um, what do you do to get reimbursed for expenses? Uh, if there's a sexual harassment claim, who do you go to, how do you report that? Uh, what do you need to do for um, submitting in for vacation time or time off? So these are just things that you want to put together because, again, the day and age that we're in right now where everyone's looking to sue somebody, you want to be pretty consistent in your policies. So you don't want to give Sally five days off, but when Tom asks you for it, you say no. Or, you know, Joe gets two weeks vacation because his family lives in another country, but when Lisa asks to go on vacation just because she wants to visit another country, you say no. So again, you want to try to keep your procedures and policies consistent. So now that you have your employees on board, you have your consultants. Well, now you're looking for your suppliers and distributors depending on which tier you're in or which if you're an importer or distributor or both. So again, you may be confronted with somebody coming to you and say, "Okay, I'll work with you. However, I want you to sign this non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement." But it may be one-sided. So again, what they're trying to do is protect their interests for their business. They may be in existence for 50-plus you know, years in Italy or wherever they are, and they come to you, you're starting out or you're a newer business, well, they say, well, why am I going to give you all my plans and the information for my pricing, for my products, or what I'm going to be rolling out the next couple of years unless I have some assurances that you're not going to tell everybody else? So if somebody comes to you, what I would normally recommend is that you make that confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure agreement mutual, right? Because you may be disclosing plans that you have or ideas for that particular company, and they're going to be disclosing their ideas to you or their products, and this way you both have a good level of comfort. So now, once you get past the NDA, you may go into a non-binding agreement. So you'll negotiate what your terms are going to be. And then somebody may issue you or you may issue to the other side what could be either called a term sheet, a letter of intent, or a memorandum of understanding. So basically what these documents do, they're going to highlight broad strokes as to what you've agreed to. Maybe you've agreed to um, import wine, a particular brand or brands. Uh, You're going to talk about maybe the pricing, how often you're going to be purchasing inventory, what the term of your agreement's going to be, maybe you're going to work together for a year, maybe it'll be indefinite, maybe it's five years. And then uh, it may have loose terms about, you know, if you terminate, what happens. So these non-binding agreements are good because they outline what your arrangement is between the two parties, however, that's not a definitive agreement. And when I say definitive agreements, I mean that's the agreement that you actually sign that you live by. So that could be an importation agreement if you're importing products, it could be a distribution agreement if you're working with a different distributor. So once that's um, agreed to, then um, once you go through your definitive agreement, it's gonna be a little more robust. You know, you may talk about, now, how do you terminate your arrangement together? If you have intellectual property, if there are trademarks involved, are you are they authorized to license those marks to you? Uh, do they own them? Whatever reps and warranties that they're going to make, that would be in the definitive agreement. And again, everything is gonna be a little more robust with information. So now, once you sign your agreement, what do you need? Well, now to bring that product in, you have an agreement, But in order to bring it into the U.S., you need an authorization letter. So the supplier would issue that letter to you. You would file it and say that uh, generally you'll be the exclusive importer of that particular product. And then, once you have that, the last thing that you need to do is file um, that facility has to be registered as a facility because they're going to be producing product that's coming into the United States. And also, they need to receive notice as, when, as to when that product is coming in. This was implemented under the Bioterrorism Act after 9 11. So, compliance issues again, we're extremely heavy, heavily regulated in this industry. So um, there's certain things and certain formalities that we have to go through before bringing product in. So one of them is a certificate of label approval. So again, we have our, we have our Agreement with our supplier to bring products in and now in order to do so the product has to be properly labeled So a certificate of label approval is something that is submitted to the TTB and it has to follow strict standards as to the type of product it is uh, the volume alcohol and Some other information that is requested. So again, it's a simple form It's easy to fill out a copy of the label is included and then it once that's approved then you can generally start um, bringing product in. Now, in some cases, there's a pre-cola product evaluation. And what that is in certain countries and certain products, you may need to provide either a formula, you may have to provide samples, and also talk about various ingredients, because certain ingredients and products outside of the U.S. are not permitted to come into the U.S. So in certain cases, you may also have that extra step involved. And now once you now have your federal COLA approved, now you're able to start applying to go into the states, so the states that you decided to work with. So some states require brand registration. So you would have to file which brand you're bringing in. Usually it's the brand, the type, the size, and whatnot. And then in some other states, you may be required to price file. Now, price filing is not required in all estates, the however, they do do this so people are on a level playing field. So if I'm selling a particular product in New York and say that um, say my friend John is a retailer, and I really like him and I want to help his business, and he said he would help my business, so I want to sell it to him at a great price. But then you know, there's Peter over here, who I'm really not fond of. And um, he's been giving me a hard time. So you know what? I want to charge him a little extra just because. Well, you can't do that. Everybody needs to be able to purchase your products at the same price. Now, of course, there some exceptions if they're highly allocated products. Um, but for the most part, as a general rule, that's the reason why they have price posting. So now sales and marketing, again, important because now you're selling and marketing these products. And again, heavily regulated industry, so you want to make sure you don't run afoul of the strict standards in which we do so. So um, it's important to work with your internal team, whether that's your employees or your consultants. There are also agents and representatives that you may work with. You may get a third-party agency to host events for you or plan events for you and um, you may work with a modeling agency. So you can have models that are going out to try and um, have consumers taste your products, which is perfectly fine and legal. You may also have your supplier or manufacturer who has um, you know, people on their teams that want to come to the US and really talk about and educate the consumers about their products. So they may host a, maybe a chef's tasting. Um, they may have an event where they're doing a pairing of wine and food or it could be spirits and food. Whatever the event may be, you just want to make sure that they understand the guidelines in which they can actually hold these events and go out and sell. I've worked with companies who've had their own salespeople uh, that come from abroad, that come into the US, and they think that they can go out and they can just give away free products. Well, that's something that you can't do here. Now, there's such a thing as giving people samples, like maybe I go to a retail account, I sit down, have a formal tasting going through the attributes of that particular product, but then I can't keep going back every week and giving them another bottle of product to try, hoping to encourage sales. So it's really important to go through and understand what these standards are both at the federal level and at the state level and then educate your team and then also work with your suppliers or your third party vendors that are helping you uh, so looking at the looking at the compliance governance we have again federal trade practices um, ABC boards will tell you what you can't do um, You have the Federal Trade Commission for Advertising and the Attorney General oversee the uh, trade and advertising as well. So now, the best way to keep up to date with the industry is really to look at these resources that are available and everything basically is available online. The TTB, obviously, is the guiding force for the federal level. This is where you get your permits, and there's a lot of great information on there about how to obtain your permits, what you can and can't do. They post the laws and the statutes. If you, you know, want some light reading, I encourage you to do so. Uh, also at the state level, you can look at the particular state ABC boards because, again, they have valuable information. And there are a couple of other organizations, such as the National Association of Beverage Importers, which is a great resource, especially if you're an importer, right? So they're gonna let you know, are there uh, trade tariffs coming down? What has been, uh, what's not permitted to come in? What, um, you know, what ingredient is, is in a certain product that's not permitted? And then also the Distilled Spirits Council, previously known as DISCUS, now it's DSC, Again, another fantastic resource. It'll talk about the history of this industry and also the different things that are going on in various states and events. And, um, and lastly, just looking at blogs and other online resources, because, again, it's invaluable. There's so much information available at your fingertips, and obviously events like today are great. So between, you know, Beverage Trade Network is great for getting the news out there for everybody. And like I said, you're going to be walking around talking to a lot of people today, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot of great knowledge. So with that, I will leave you, so this way you can start mingling and networking, and uh, hopefully I provided you with a little bit of information that will help you with your businesses.